Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. All right. If you'd like to, if you've brought a Bible with you, you can turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, we'll be reading starting at verse 36, or you can follow along on the screens as well. This passage that we're going to look at this morning is one of the most jarring, one of the, the most uncomfortable, challenging, provocative accounts of Jesus in the Gospels. The truth is, if you came here today hoping for a bit of a moral tune-up or a uh, few steps to being a better person, maybe a spiritual boost, then I've got nothing for you. But if you came here today and you're tired of acting like you have it all together, if you're fed up with pretending that you're something you're not, if you're done hiding your messes and your wounds and your secrets, then I have good news for you. 2,000 years ago, love walked among us. Love took on flesh. And when he did, he exposed the failure of religion. So stand if you're willing and able, and let's hear God's word this morning. Luke chapter 7, starting at verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went with him into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I have came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. 
Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord for you this morning. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever been around someone who is an expert in their field? Someone who's a, a true expert in their field. When you're around someone like that, what, is, what does that usually reveal about you? Well, it usually reveals your inadequacies, right? Your shortcomings, how much you don't know. In graduate school, I learned from men who uh, uh, knew multiple ancient languages and had been asked to serve on various uh, translation teams uh, of the Bible. I remember one professor started the first day of class by saying, now I want you to know there is such a thing as a dumb question. Don't be the student who asks it. I met with my uh, financial advisor this week, and that sounds very kind of hoity-toity, but the truth is, Allstate, where I have my car insurance, you can call, and there's a guy who does these things for free. He'll just meet with you. And so I met with my financial advisor this week, and, uh, uh, and, 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 and he exposed how much I don't know about IRAs and insurances and wills and you know, powers of attorneys and, and, and all these things. That's what happens when you get in the presence of someone who's an expert. Well, in Israel, there was a group of experts. They knew their Bibles cover to cover. They knew the traditions. They were looked up to. They were experts in religion. The scribes and the Pharisees. But then one day, this man named Jesus starts to rub shoulders with them and interact with them. And you would think that what, what would happen would, would be that this, this no-name guy from Nazareth, this, this son of a carpenter, this one who hung out with fishermen, that when he came into contact with these experts of religion, that it would show just how inadequate and deficient he was. And yet the funniest thing happened. He actually showed how inadequate and deficient they were. Because they were experts in religion, but Jesus was an expert in love. Jesus, when he interacted with the Pharisees and the scribes, he exposed their failure, the failure of their religion to produce love. Religion cannot produce love. That might be shocking to you. That religion can't produce, or maybe it's not shocking. Maybe you think of things like 9-11 or the Crusades. Maybe you think of people who hold signs that say God hates fags. And maybe you think, it's, I'm not actually that surprised that religion can't produce love. But, but I think most people, most North Americans are surprised by that because they think, isn't that why we're here? Isn't that what church is? Aren't we here to do religion? What do you mean religion can't produce love? There's a show, a TV show, local TV show in Tampa that uh, contacted us this week, and uh, they were looking for a, a church and, and I guess some pastors to, to partner with for their show. They said, we can reach two million people in the, the Tampa Bay area, and, uh, and their show is called The Balancing Act. And said, we're looking for somebody who could, who could come, and, and we want to do, they said, an, an episode 
on uh, education on the importance of religion in your life. And, uh, and we didn't reply to them. Do you know why? Because we don't think that's a good thing. We don't think it's good to try to balance religion in your life. Uh, we actually think that if you uh, were religious, that that, that, would, that would be a bad thing. Jesus exposed the failure of religion because religion and the gospel are two very different things. Religion and the gospel are two very different things. If you've been around Seven Rivers for any length of time, you've heard us say these things, but I've got to tell you, it never gets old. It's like cold water to somebody who's been stumbling through the desert. And maybe some of you are experiencing this oasis for the first time, and you're wondering, is this, mir- is this a mirage? Is this really true? Could it really be true? Even Richard Dawkins, the well-known atheist, one time was wearing a T-shirt that said, Atheists for Jesus. And, uh, and somebody asked him about that, and, and he said, well, the point I was trying to make is that Jesus uh, was a good man. And, and Dawkins said Jesus expressed what he called a, a super niceness, uh, something that evolution couldn't account for. Evolution is, is, is cruel. Uh, but, but he said Jesus expressed this super niceness and, and said we have to learn to identify where this super niceness comes from and try to spread it around. Even Richard Dawkins realizes that um, Jesus was different. Um, what he called a super niceness, Jesus just called love. 2,000 years ago, love walked among us. Love took on flesh. And when he did, he exposed the failure of religion. So how does religion fail to produce love? And why is that good news? That's the question we're answering this morning. Why does religion fail to produce love? And why is that good news? So you've got an outline on the inside cover of your bulletin. Let's talk about it. First, religion fails to produce love because religion is built on judging. Judging is the OS. Judging is the operating system of religion. So Jesus is invited to the house of a Pharisee named uh, Simon. And the way that it went in those days uh, was uh, when you would go to eat at someone's house, it, it, was, it was like a courtyard. And, uh, and everyone would kind of be facing each other in kind of a circle. And they would, they would have these low couches. And so the the, the men would lay on their uh, left elbow reclining uh, and would eat with their right hand and their feet would be back behind them. And that was because they, they thought that the feet were unclean. And uh, so this is how they would eat. And, and it would be, you know, the door would be open. People would be welcome to kind of come in and, and, and hear the conversation. It, was a, uh, it wasn't like this was a closed door thing. So here's Jesus at this Pharisee's house and they're they're eating, and who walks in? But, uh, but the text says, but a woman who is known as a woman of the city, a big sinner. She's likely a, a prostitute. And this, uh, this woman is known by the whole community. And she walks in, and uh, she begins to wet Jesus' feet with her tears. And, uh, and, and she lets down her hair and dries his feet with her hair. And you've got to know that at that time, a Jewish woman would never let down her hair in public. She would only let down her hair for her husband. It, it, the, the Talmud said that you could be divorced for doing that. 
because it would have been like walking around without a shirt on. Uh, it, it was that kind of thing. And, and here's this woman letting down her hair. Now, what she's doing is not sexual. It's not um, erotic, but, but it's all she knows to do. She lets down her hair, and she uh, dries his feet, and she takes a, a, an alabaster flask of ointment. It, it would be like perfume, very expensive perfume in, in a very precious jar that women would have worn around their neck. And, uh, and she takes that and begins to anoint Jesus's uh, feet with this uh, ointment. Um, everyone at the, at the table is just silent watching this happen, wondering uh, what's going on and how will Jesus respond. Well, Simon is also watching this, and Simon, how does he respond? He responds by judging. Look again at verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. So what is judging? Judging is internally analyzing someone else, determining what's wrong with them, and then categorizing them so that you can dismiss them. Judging is a knee-jerk thing. It's quick. It's bereft of any thought. Paul Miller writes, he says, it's no longer fashionable to talk about sin, but we've not lost our ability to be judgmental. Our knowledge of psychology has increased our ability to see people or their actions as wrong, bad, inferior, messed up, or dysfunctional. In other words, we see sins. We analyze one another all the time. Did he have a troubled childhood, or is he just naturally that way? We get a little insight into a person, put him in a box, and conclude he should really be in therapy or he has issues. I mean, what is one of the primary complaints that people have uh, of religious folk? They're just so judgmental. And they're mostly right. We can get life out of making negative evaluations of others. It gives us a buzz. It makes us feel superior. Patrick uh, Lencioni uh, is, um, in his book, The Advantage, he talks about what he calls the fundamental attribution area, which is the um, tendency to view the, uh, the negative actions and the shortcomings uh, of others to attribute that to, to their uh, issues, right? To, to their character flaws, to, to their problems, they're lazy. Uh, they, uh, they just aren't smart enough or, or, or whatever, but, but I attribute my own shortcomings and my own inadequacies to my environment, right? So uh, it, it, it's, uh, if, if someone shows up late to work, well, it's because they're lazy and they slept in, but if I show up late to work, it's because there was traffic, right? So we tend to attribute other people's negative things um, to their character, but our own negative things to environmental factors. In the story, did you notice Simon, when he judges, he doesn't just judge the woman. Who, who, is, who else is he judging? He's judging Jesus, right? He, he, says, he says, what kind of prophet is this? If this man were really a prophet, he would have known. And, and he does so, it says, to himself. He says it to himself. Judging is those thoughts that you say to yourself. Or those comments that you mumble under your breath when you think no one can hear you. But Jesus is not fooled. 
Jesus knows Simon's thoughts and he knows our thoughts. And honestly, can I tell you, other people aren't fooled. It's uh, trying to hide a judgmental spirit is like trying to hide an elephant behind a tree. On, on Easter, uh, my, uh, my wife and I are sitting down here in the front and uh, it's a beautiful service, great preaching, uh, and um, uh, the end of the, the service, we're singing, and my wife was running the bookstore that week. Uh, it, was, it was Easter, and, and normally she, she coordinates volunteers, but, but no one else could do it on Easter morning, so she was, you know, happy to do it. So she's doing the bookstore, open before the service and after the service, and typically we tell people, you know, try to, to, to get out uh, during the last song before everyone's dismissed so that you can get the bookstore open so when people go out. And, and so, uh, so, we're, so we're down here, we're worshiping, and, and, and it starts to get to the last song, and, uh, and I kind of elbowed her, and uh, I was like, hey, don't you want to get going? And she's like, leave me alone. <laughs> and uh, so I'm worshiping. So I love um, the, the music. I'm, I'm just I'm soaking this in. I just want to, as long as I can, I want um, uh, to stay in worship. And so she did. And, and, and uh, Ray got up to give the benediction. And, and so um, uh, she very quickly, she grabbed her purse and, and to go out to get to the books to try to beat people out there to open the bookstore. And as she was going up the aisle, um, as she passed, somebody very uh, gruffly said, you better hurry up and get out of here as quick as you can. You wouldn't want to stay. On Easter. And I mean, okay, she's my wife, so I'm going to always defend her, right? But the more I thought about this, the more I realized I do the same thing. I just don't say it out loud. When I see people getting up before, uh, the, after the sermon's over and leaving uh, during the worship to, to go get in their car, I think, gosh, what, what's wrong? Why can't you just stay and, 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 and you know, talk with us, do some community? But, but what if they have a really good reason for leaving? What if there's something I don't know about why they're trying to get out quickly? Oh, Jesus, help us not to be so judgmental. We, uh, this first movie that we watched um, called The Overnighters, Ray mentioned it last week, about a church and a pastor in North Dakota that uh, as the oil boom was going in that state, uh, it was right around the time of the recession, so, so this was the place to be if you wanted to try and find a job and make money. And so men from all over the country uh, just sold what they had to try to help their families. They moved by themselves to North Dakota to get an oil rigging job. And they got there and they had nothing. They didn't have a place to live. Uh, they didn't have any connections, trying to find jobs. And so uh, this, this pastor opened up his church for these men to, to sleep in, in cars in the parking lot and, and on the floor uh, of the church. He even said at one point, um, you know, I didn't realize how provocative it would be letting people use floor space. But the community hated it, right? The people in the church didn't like it, having these people here. And uh, at one pivotal point in the, in the movie, it's discovered that some of the men who are staying at the church are sex offenders. And their names and the address of the church are, are written in the local newspaper. And the community turns on the church. And the church members turn on the pastor because we don't want those people here.
We want to have them living in our community. Henry Nouwen was a Catholic priest who left a teaching position at Harvard to care for disabled adults. He wrote, he said, in order to be of service to others, we have to die to them. That is, we have to give up measuring our meaning and value with the yardstick of others. To die to our neighbors means to stop judging them, to stop evaluating them, and thus to become free to be compassionate. Compassion can never coexist with judgment because judgment creates the distance, the distinction, which prevents us from really being with the other. It's impossible to love somebody when you're judging them. Jesus said, um, or, or Simon said, you know, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him. She's a sinner. But Jesus responded to Simon with a, a short parable. He said, listen, Simon, there was a moneylender, and moneylenders usually like to get their money back. That's how it goes. And so he lent his money out. One, of, one guy owed him 500 denarii, and one guy owed him 50 denarii. And, uh, and a denarii was like a, a day's wage. So, so one guy owed him like a month and a half's worth of money. The other guy owed him like a year and a half's worth of money. So one guy owed him five grand, the other guy owed him 50 grand. And uh, uh, the, the lender canceled the debt of both. Now Simon, which one of those men do you think would have loved him more? And Simon answers, and his, even in his answer, he's, he's begrudging. He said, well, I, I suppose, suppose the one who had the greater debt, the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And did you notice, how does Jesus respond to him? He says, you've done what? You've judged correctly. Listen, Simon, if you want to judge something, here's what you need to get right. And Simon knows what he's getting at. But Jesus is not saying to, you know, Simon, uh, this woman's a really big sinner. She's got, what's, what's Jesus really getting at? Simon knows. That's why he doesn't want to answer. Jesus is really telling him, Simon, you're the big sinner. You're at least as much of a sinner, if not more of a sinner than her. Your pride is just as egregious to God as her prostitution. So if you're going to judge correctly, Simon, start by judging yourself. The problem is religion doesn't have the resources to produce love because it's built on judging others. And if you take away judging others, then you have nothing to distract yourself from the truth of your own mess. So second, religion fails to produce love because judging always results in an attitude of self-righteousness. Judging always results in an attitude of self-righteousness. What is self-righteousness? Self-righteousness is believing that you are morally superior to others. It's a, it's a holier-than-thou attitude. So the woman was, was washing her car in the driveway um, uh, at, right after her baby was born. She's out in the driveway washing her car, and an, another young mom who lived in the neighborhood walked by on the sidewalk, and she saw her doing this, and she said, I just, I just don't know how you have the strength to, to do everything that you do. And she said, well, it's amazing how much you can get done when you're organized. You should try it. <laughs> self-righteousness, right? The problem with self-righteousness is because of its very nature, because it's self-focused, 
it's very hard for us to see. We can't see it in ourselves. I mean, a bad hair day is a bad hair day. Right? Everybody knows it. You know it. You can see it in the mirror. Um, but bad breath. Other people can smell it, but you can't, right? That's what self-righteousness is like. Other people can see it. Other people can smell it, but you can't. So Simon can't see his self-righteousness, and Jesus tries to help him. Look, at, look again, starting at verse 44. It says, then turning toward the woman, he, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? It's a very intentional question that Jesus asks. I mean, Simon saw the woman, right? He saw her enough to judge her, but he didn't really see her. He didn't see her the way Jesus saw her. All he saw was himself and his moral superiority. Did you see this woman, Simon? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. What is Jesus trying to to show Simon, to get him to see? Is that at that time, I mean, there were just basic, ordinary uh, hospitality uh, customs. That when somebody walked into your house, it, it was just common courtesy to welcome them. You'd put your hand on their shoulder and you'd welcome them with a kiss. But Simon didn't do that. And yet this woman came in and kissed Jesus' feet. It was common hospitality that you would take off your visitor's sandals and wash their feet because it was dirty and dusty. Simon didn't do that. But this woman came and washed Jesus' feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. It'd be common to take some olive oil and, and anoint the person's head, but Simon didn't do that. And yet this woman anoints his feet with precious perfume. And so, what's Jesus trying to reveal? He's trying to reveal Simon's attitude. What did Simon think of Jesus? Not very much. Simon looked down on Jesus. He was self-righteous. He was too good for Jesus. He was too good for the woman. He was too good for Jesus. And because of that, he could not love either. We think the same things that Simon thought. When we say things like, I'd never do anything as bad as... Or, I, at least I'm not like... Or, I would never be caught doing self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is why we post things on social media that we'd never say in person. Self-righteousness leads to calls to be woke and fuels cancel culture. Self-righteousness judges you on whether or not you get vaccinated or whether or not you wear a mask. Self-righteousness is what drives ratings on cable news networks. If you think you are morally superior to others, you will never be able to love. There was a, a woman in the place we lived before this that uh, had, had uh, two abortions, and um, she had come to meet Jesus, and she had experienced forgiveness and um, had, been, had been walking with him and uh, was, was given a heart for other women to help them. And, and she, was, she was a good leader. She was qualified, uh, and she, uh, she had a passion for this, 
ministry, and so a, uh, a local pregnancy uh, care center was looking for a director, and she applied for the job. And she sat in the interview, and the board members of the pregnancy care center uh, heard her story, looked over her resume, they said to her, we're just not sure you have a good enough testimony to be the director here. What? She has the perfect testimony, right, to be the director. But self-righteousness blinds you, keeps you from loving. There's a student, uh, and he was on a plane and uh, sitting on the end, and uh, and across the aisle uh, from him plopped down Martin Luther King Jr., and, uh, and he couldn't believe it. And, 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 and he just kind of plopped down in the seat like he was really tired. And so the student didn't talk to him and, uh, and didn't say anything. And then uh, finally, uh, after some time, uh, he, he got up the nerve and he said, Dr. King, it's an honor to meet you. Uh, I, I'm, I go to, to Wofford College. I'm, I'm in the movement. I'm coming from a training session in Washington. I'm, I'm really, I really appreciate what you're doing. And he didn't say anything. He just continued to sit there. And so he, he said, Dr. King, my father is a farmer in the low country of South Carolina. He's such a racist. I've tried to talk to him. I've tried to explain to him why the fight for racial justice is so important. But he says terrible things. I'm not going home for Thanksgiving uh, because I don't want anything to do with such a redneck, racist old fool. And at that, Dr. King lurched across the aisle and grabbed him by the arm and in a voice loud enough to wake the whole plane, he said, you've got to love your daddy. He sat back down and went back to sleep. Self-righteousness will keep you from loving people. Religion operates on judging and it always leads to an attitude of self-righteousness. When we're filled with a sense of our own goodness, then we have no need for Jesus, and we will not love the people he loves. Martin Luther said that God loves sinners, evil persons, fools, and weaklings, the very people self-righteous look down on. So religion fails to produce love because of judging, because of self-righteousness, and then third, religion fails to love because of legalism. Legalism. You You don't see it as clearly in this passage But based on other interactions that Jesus has with the scribes and the Pharisees in the Gospels, it's clear that their legalism is what keeps them from loving. What is legalism? Legalism says, well, if people just followed the rules, if people just did uh, do the right thing, then everything would be okay. Legalism reduces the complex demands of faithfulness into lesser, easier-to-follow rules. And so the Bible, to a legalist, becomes a how-to manual. Don't eat, don't touch, don't listen, don't watch, don't say these things, don't go those places. Eugene Peterson, um, he he had traditions growing up as a kid, just like a lot of us uh, had, during Christmas time, uh, they would go and, uh, and cut down their own Christmas tree. And so they would, uh, his dad would get out the axe and sharpen it, and, and, and they'd hop in the pickup truck. He'd ride in the back 10 miles down the dirt road to the 
place where the, the trees were, and, and he got to pick out the Christmas tree. His dad would, with four or five swings, would, would fell the tree and then trim it up and get it onto the truck, and they'd take it back. And, and then Eugene would go up into the attic, and he'd pull down the tinsel and the lights, and, and they'd uh, decorate the tree, and his dad would, would take some wood and, and put it around the base so it would stand up nice and straight. This was their Christmas tradition. And then one year, in 1939, his mom decided they weren't going to do a Christmas tree anymore. Well, why? Well, because she read in the book of Jeremiah where it says that um, uh, Jeremiah is talking about the idolatry of the people. And, uh, and it says, you know, a man comes and cuts down wood with an axe and he shapes it in fashion. He puts metal on it and, and so that it can't move. And, uh, and she said, well, see, true Christians don't have Christmas trees. And here's what he writes about that. He says, of that year, it wasn't just the tree that was gone. The richly nuanced ritual was abolished. A noun tree was deleted from December, but along with it, it's adjective Christmas, or so I felt. And it was all because Jeremiah had preached his Christmas tree sermon. Because Jeremiah had looked through his prophetic telescope his spirit-magnified vision reaching across 12,000 miles in 2,600 years, seeing in detailed focus what we did every December and denouncing it as idolatry. I was embarrassed. Humiliated was more like it. Humiliated as only seven-year-olds can be humiliated. Abased, mortified. I was terrified of what my friends in the neighborhood would think. They would think we were too poor to have a tree. They would think I was being punished for some unspeakable sin and so deprived of a tree. They would think we didn't care about one another and didn't have fun in our house. They would feel sorry for us. They would feel superior to us. As a regular ritual in our neighborhood, we went to one another's houses, looked at the presents under the trees, and wondered what treasures they contained. But that year, I kept my friends out of my house. I was ashamed to have them come in and see the bare, treeless room. I was terrified of the questions they might ask. I made up excuses to keep them out. I lied. My sister has a contagious disease. My mother is really mad and I can't bring anybody in. But the fact of the no Christmas tree could not be hidden. After all, it was always in our front window. Alva and Alan, the twins who never went to church, asked the most questions, sensing something wrong, an edge of taunting now in their voices. I made excuses. My dad is too busy right now. We're planning on getting a tree next week, and so on. I was mostly terrified that they would discover the real reason we didn't get, have a tree that God had commanded it, at least that's what we thought at the time, a religious reason. But religion was the one thing that made us better than our neighbors. And now, if they were to find out our secret, it would make us worse. Legalism. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint, dill, and cumin. You, you tithe out of your spice rack, but you You neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. You appear outwardly righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. What's the problem with the legalist? The legalist never addresses the heart. The legalist never uh, assesses their motivations. They keep the letter of the law but not the spirit of the law. Paul Miller writes, legalism reinforces self-righteousness because it communicates to you the good news of your own goodness. 
It systematizes judging, eliminating gray areas so we don't have to think about love. So let's, let's, let's go back to our passage. There are really, this story is about two people who couldn't be any different. There's a man. This man has a name. He's well-known in his community. He's respected. He's, he's a religious leader. He's kept the law, but he's judgmental, self-righteous, legalistic, and as a consequence, unloving. And then there's a woman, a woman who we don't even know her name. She's known in her community as a big sinner, and yet she shows incredible love to Jesus. What made the difference? What's the difference? The answer is forgiveness. Look again at what Jesus says. Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. He said to this woman, your sins are forgiven. And they asked, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You know, I've heard this passage, I don't know how many times since I was a little boy, but something finally clicked for me this week. Something I'd never gotten before in all the times reading this passage. I'd always assumed that this woman who came to Jesus, that this was the first time that she met him. I just made that assumption. Uh, that, that somehow uh, she heard that Jesus was at, at Simon's house and you know, God moved her to go and this was her first interaction with Jesus. But what if it wasn't? The text never explicitly tells us that, but all the Bible scholars, all the commentators that I read said that that makes the most sense out of this passage. It makes the most sense that she had some kind of interaction with Jesus before this, whether she was part of a crowd that heard his teaching, whether there is an interaction that we're not told about, that, that before this she had already um, experienced Jesus' grace. She had already believed in him. She had already received his forgiveness. So she comes to him, having already done that, comes to him as an act of love. Her actions are a response to him loving her first. That's what Jesus wanted Simon to get. She's done this. She's loved much because she has been forgiven much. The Jerusalem Bible translation, I think, captures it best. says, for this reason, I tell you that her sins, her many sins, must have been forgiven, or she would not have shown such great love. She wouldn't have done this if she hadn't experienced such great love already. And, but, but here's the thing. Why does Jesus tell her your sins are forgiven? If he's already forgiven her, why does he tell her again? Why does he say to her, your sins are forgiven, your faith has saved you, go in peace? Well, for two reasons. One is, he said it so that everyone else would hear it. Everyone else who only knew her as a sinner, that they would hear that she's more than that. And they even asked the question, well, who is this who even forgives sins? But there's another reason why he said your sins are forgiven. Have you ever asked Jesus for forgiveness more than once? But didn't he forgive you the first time you asked him? How often do you need to hear words of forgiveness from Jesus? All the time. We need to hear it all the time. 
we need to be reminded. It really is true. Your faith has saved you. Go, go in peace. Why does religion fail to produce love? Because religion offers you no hope for forgiveness. Religion cannot um, set you free. It can only enslave you. He who is forgiven little loves little. Forgiveness, grace, the gospel, that's what produces love. So here's a story. There was a distinguished business leader. He had built his company up from nothing to really something. He was chair of his church's board as well as the chamber of commerce and Rotary. The church fellowship hall was named in honor of his generous gift. Because he had worked so hard to build up his company and because his leadership set the moral tone for the corporation, when he heard that a person in the accounting division had been pilfering, he said, fire her, then turn it over to the cops. Teach her a lesson. Sometime later, a teenager broke into the man's prized Mercedes coupe, went on a joyride, and bashed the car into a fire hydrant. As an example to all the other wayward youth of the community, he said, he's 19, ought to know better. Put him in the slammer. It'll teach him a lesson. When his son crashed out of his second drug treatment program since flunking out of college, an expensive one in New England, he said, that's it. Had it with that boy. Disinherit him. It'll teach him a lesson. In due time, the man died. He went before his maker, and when the man thought back on the way he had lived, all the times he had come down hard on others, the deaf ear he had turned to their pleas for mercy, he trembled. And from the great throne of heaven, the judge of all looked down upon him and thundered, forgive him. It'll teach him a lesson. What Jesus says to Simon, and he says to us, Have you learned the lesson? If you're not loving, it's because you haven't experienced my forgiveness, or maybe you haven't experienced it lately. This woman, when she came to Jesus, I think she initially, her plan was just to anoint his feet with the oil. But she got there, and when she got to Jesus, she was overwhelmed with emotion. She was overwhelmed with gratitude and love that she, even she, could be forgiven. And so she began to weep. Martin Luther called her tears heart water. When was the last time your heart was moved to tears at the forgiveness of your Savior? Religious people, they can't judge themselves correctly because they're blinded by their self-righteousness which is only reinforced by their legalism. Those who sense no need of forgiveness will never know the joy that fuels love. But those who know the enormity of their debt before God delight in his forgiveness and therefore devote themselves to him. John Newton, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, weeks before he wrote that, he journaled. He said, so much forgiven, so little, little love. So many mercies, so few returns. Such great privileges and a life so sadly below them. And so what did he do? Did he just redouble his efforts, said, I'm going to try to love more. I'm going to try to be a more loving person and be better. What did he do? No, he he wrote Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, 
how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Paul Herbert was a municipal court judge in Ohio. He was uh, going through the purpose-driven life with his daughters, and, and his daughters asked him, Dad, how do you apply this to your life? I mean, what's your purpose? And he said something about, well, I'm a, I'm a light on the bench and justice. But it really got him started thinking about, well, what is my purpose in this job that God's giving me as a judge? And so uh, he started to pay attention to the people who came through his courtroom. And he started to notice when prostitutes would be brought into the courtroom um, that, uh, that their stories were, were very different than you might think. He, he began researching, and what he learned stunned him. He learned that over 80% of, of prostitutes um, are sexually abused, typically starting around age eight. They often start using drugs to deal with that trauma around 12. These girls run away from home or they're kidnapped and sold by predatory pimps and the commercial sex trade. And so he, he began to say, what can I do about this? And so he put together a program in which these women would receive uh, drug treatment and counseling and, uh, and, and, and actually uh, start to get help. And, and, and he began to see some of them, you know, begin to, to go to community college and, and actually be sober uh, from their addictions. And you'd think, that's amazing. That's the amazing part of this story. It's not the amazing part of the story. The amazing part of the story is what happened to him. He said, the Holy Spirit continues to reveal how much I've been forgiven and how similar I am to the individuals that come before me. That's really hard to say. My job is to judge. But the farther I go along in my faith, the more I realize that I'm just like most of them. And that makes me more understanding, more kind, and more merciful. You know, in this moment of such turmoil, what does our culture need? They don't need judgmental, self-righteous, legalistic, religious people. They need humble, broken, don't have it all together, forgiven followers of Jesus. 2,000 years ago, love put on flesh. He walked among us, and when he did, he exposed the failure of religion to love. But Jesus still walks among us. Do you know how he does that? Through you. You're the hands and feet of Jesus. You get to take the love that you've experienced and give it to others. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, help us to love like you love. But God, that'll never happen if we're too proud, if we can't see others because we we look down our noses at them. Would you help us to see our own sin, our own shortcomings, our own failures? Would you melt us, melt our hearts into tears with your forgiveness and help us to love like you loved? In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, 
please visit our website at sevenrivers.org.